Well, good morning, everybody. It is wonderful to see you all here this morning. It's nice to be home uh, back uh, among uh, folks from Sherwood Oaks. So thank you for the invitation to come and to be a part of the day. Uh, It is great to see you all. Tim, thank you for your kind words and your encouragement and for the invitation to come and, uh, and preach this morning. Now, he can, he can say all he wants to say, but I'll tell you, that was one of the best hires we ever made at Sherwood Oaks. <clears throat> and Tim had mentioned to me earlier, if I would share, some of you had asked, what have I been doing since uh, I retired about a year and a half ago? Uh, and so I, it's, been, it's been busier than I really anticipated. I would, was retired a month, and I got a call from Nashville, Indiana, at the Christian church there, and they said, we're without a preacher, can you serve as an interim? So for the next nine months, I preached in Nashville, Indiana. And uh, then after that, we took a, about a two-month break, and I got a call from Seymour. Uh, and so I was in Seymour for the next seven months, just finished that up uh, last month, and um, Helping them with their new preacher, he came, and so I'm doing some mentoring with him, first full-time ministry for him. I'm doing mentoring with two or three other guys where I spend uh, about an hour a week on a Zoom call with them individually, helping them out. Um, Next is the Bob Russell Ministry Retreat. For years, ever since Bob Russell retired from the Southeast Christian Church, Bob has hosted these weeks for ministers to come, and they're encouraged. They're, he's given them some teaching, and he's just lifted them up. Ben Merrill used to help him. Ben retired from that, and Bob asked if I would step in and serve with him. So I'm doing about seven weeks every year with Bob uh, down at the Southeast Camp, and one of those is next week, another one at the end of the month. And, and so keep those men in your prayers, because most of them come hurting and needing encouragement in their ministry. Uh, I'm also working with E2 Ministries. Sherwood Oaks is working with E2 out of Indianapolis. Uh, Gary Johnson, and so I'm doing some writing and teaching uh, with them. Uh, I continue to serve with the CEC. Now, that's the Chaplain's Endorsement Commission for the Christian churches. Being a non-denominational fellowship of churches, we need a group that endorses men and women who are going into the military chaplaincies as well as hospital chaplaincies. And so I've served with that for the last several years and continue uh, to do that. So there's just a whole lot of things going on, and uh, Elsa and I have enjoyed it. Uh, And yet it is a different pace. Uh, It's not the same as it was, and I'm enjoying uh, that different pace. So thank you again for the invitation to be here. You're in this Core 52 study, and and we are in Mark chapter 1, verse 1 this morning. I love it when somebody starts a conversation with, I've got good news. There's a certain, you know, you hear those words and and you just immediately start feeling like, oh, I'm expecting something really positive to happen. The conversation could go in a dozen different directions, but when it begins that way, you know it's always going to be good no matter what direction it goes. Good news, your newborn girl is healthy. She has all of her fingers and toes. Good news, the test came back negative. You do not have cancer. Good news, you passed your driver's exam. Good news, you'll be receiving a better than expected raise for the next year. You see, it always precedes good news. And and, and it never precedes something negative. You know, when's the last time you heard your auto mechanic come out and say, good news, I couldn't fix your tire. Now you're going to have to buy four new ones. I mean, you know what? Maybe good news for him, but it's certainly not good news for you. People don't do that. Good news is what we find in the church. And it's been recently difficult to find anywhere else. 
regardless of the media that you use, whether it's TV or radio or newspaper or online different sources, it's becoming increasingly difficult to find the positive. I miss Paul Harvey. You've heard the old expression, no news is good news. That's generally true. (laughs) I really like this quote from Nicholas Bentley. He said, no news is good news. No journalist is even better. Now, what do we, the church, know about good news? Well, Mark, in his gospel, introduces us to this word, gospel. And this is your core 52 memory verse for this week. I know you're going to start in tomorrow morning reading the chapter and reading all about it. But this is where it begins. And I want you to read it out loud with me this morning. And I hope that before the week is out, you'll know this verse by heart. It's a short one. It's a simple one to remember, but but it's important. Okay, you ready? The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now let's read that again. Ready? The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All right, now work this week on putting that one, committing it to memory. Now, when we open up the Gospels, it seems like we tend to blow right past the first verse, like this one. It just seems so, well, plain. Uh, we, We treat it almost like we do the dear Tom or dear Sally at the beginning of a letter. It's just basically the greeting. Doesn't have much to say, no news in it, but that would be a mistake. There is a lot more to unpack in this simple verse than meets the eye. Mark's gospel has been generally agreed to be the first of the four and probably written while Mark was serving with Peter in Rome. Thus, sometimes we refer to Mark's gospel as Peter's gospel because it's probably Peter's reflections and memories that Mark is writing down for us. And he doesn't doesn't do anything with the birth, only Luke and Matthew deal with the birth of Christ, he just launches right in to the ministry of Jesus. However, he doesn't merely write the gospel about Jesus Christ. He says it like this, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. That's an important word, beginning. The word here is archaic, from which we get our English word archaic, meaning ancient are from olden times. Now, it's true, this is the beginning of Mark's gospel, but it is so much deeper than that. I think Mark is reminding us that the gospel of Jesus goes all the way back to the mind of God when he planned from the very beginning to save lost humanity. Now, John begins his gospel and expands on that very thought. I wonder if he thought it needed a little bit more explanation. Because John opens up with the prologue, in the beginning, same word, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he goes on in this wonderful discourse. But that's on Mark's mind. What's more, I think Mark's use of the word archaic carries the idea of this. This isn't the culmination of of Christ's ministry. This is just the beginning of our Lord's ministry. The end of the story won't be known till the end of time when he comes back and the church goes home. That will be the end of his ministry. Now, as Christians, I I know that there's something extra special about the phrase good news. And good news is the actual definition of gospel. 
But the word gospel was in use long before it was employed by the scriptures. It was a secular word used in Roman times to describe when heralds would come from the capital city and they would arrive in the small villages and towns and the townspeople would gather wherever they would gather and they would hear from the herald the news from the capital, specifically from the emperor himself, from the king himself. And it was always the good news of the kingdom. Now, I can't think of a better word to employ in Scripture than that concept. We've gathered here on a Sunday morning to hear the good news from the king himself in Scripture. There's even a double meaning in the simple preposition that is used in this statement. It can be understood as the gospel of Jesus Christ, as the author of this story, or the gospel about Jesus. Jesus Christ. It is the narrative of his life and ministry. Jesus, his name. Christ, his title. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of God, the undisputed, unique, one of a kind, one and only divine Son of God. As God said so at his baptism and at his transfiguration. Wow. That's a lot to pack into that little verse, you know. Mark begins in a powerful way. This is no ordinary book. This is no ordinary narrative. This is the biography of the most extraordinary person who ever walked on the earth. And that, folks, is good news for us. If somebody ever asked you to define and describe the gospel of Jesus Christ, you would say, well, the gospel literally means good news. But if you want the gospel in a nutshell, here it is. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the good news that has changed and transformed our lives forever. And in light of that, there are some good news things I want you to remember this morning. Here's the first one. Good news, the enemy is powerless. Now, I believe Satan, our adversary, is hard at work to reach, wreak as much havoc on this world and destruction in his wake as possible. He gets bolder every day. The church comes under fire more fiercely every day. The world's turmoil grows more intense every day, and yet seldom is Satan ever blamed. Do you notice that? When's the last time you turned on the news and one of the newscasters said, you know, Satan was hard at work today? I've never heard that. I've never heard that. How often does God get blamed for the things that are happening in this world? Do you remember in the book of Job? The book of Job opens the first couple of chapters and we get the scene in heaven of God and Satan having this conversation, which is pretty tough stuff to understand, to be honest with you. But from chapter 3... Through the end of the book, chapter 37, before God interjects himself, it is all about the human dialogue that's going on between Job and his friends. And in this dialogue, it's interesting to me. There is speculation about God's discipline. There's speculation about God's judgment. There's speculation about God's punishment. There's even speculation about God's mercy. But interestingly enough, there is no mention of Satan as the source of Job's suffering. But we know from reading the book that he was the complete source of Job's suffering. 
Jesus had this to say about Satan in John chapter 8, verse 44, about him. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And one of Satan's best tools is his subtlety. He counts on us being gullible. <laughs> and oh, how gullible we can be. At an Idaho Falls science fair, a student attempted to demonstrate human gullibility. He, he had a petition that he was asking people to sign to, to require the strict control or maybe the total elimination of the chemical dihydrogen monoxide. And then he presented the evidence against dihydrogen monoxide. He said it is a major component in acid rain. He said it can cause severe burns in its gaseous state. Accidental inhalation can kill you. It increases effectiveness, it, it decreases the effectiveness of automobile brakes, and it's been found in the tumors of terminal cancer patients. Out of 50 people that he explained that to, 43 signed on the dotted line. Six were undecided. Only one person out of 50 recognized that dihydrogen monoxide, two hydrogen, one oxygen, H2O, was actually water. See how gullible people can be? So I'm telling you this morning, don't be gullible and forget the source of your suffering. Never get tangled up in his deceit and his lies. Now here's the good news. Because of the gospel, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the enemy is powerless. Revelation 12.10 says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before God day and night, has been hurled down. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. You, dear friends, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. You got it? Yes, you can be tempted by Satan, so be on your guard. And yes, he can make your life difficult, so stick close to the Lord. But you remember this. He is powerless to destroy you. God has your back, and that's good news. Here's another one. Good news, fear is powerless. Not only is the enemy powerless, but fear is powerless. Now, in the life to come, we are promised a perfect environment. No more sin, no more temptation, no more anxiety, no more fear. There the lion will lie down with the lamb, and things will be perfect. That's then not now. And I suspect if I would ask you, if you ever feel anxious, if you ever have fear, every hand in this worship center would go up uh, because at some point in time, we all know fear. Our oldest grandson, Landon, who just turned 10 in January, was spending the night with us not long ago. And it was right at the, at the very beginning of Russia's invasion into Ukraine. And he was just he was drawn to the news like a moth to a light. He just, he just couldn't get away from it. And we'd try to get him distracted from it. And about every 10 minutes, he'd go back to see what was on TV. And he was telling me, he said, uh, you know, Don, he said, they, they, once, once they get Ukraine, they're going to go into Poland. He said, what's going to happen next? 
And I tried to explain to him, we don't know what's going to happen, but you know, we shouldn't be too worried about it. But I understood his fear. It was a mixture of, of, of curiosity and fear as he was trying to figure out what's going on in this world. But I understand that. I've taught in Russia. I've had Ukrainian students. I'm worried about the kingdom of God in that part of the world and the suffering of our brothers and sisters. You see, our Christian family is caught in the midst of wicked leaders propelled by the lust for power and control, and there is fear across the globe with what's going on. And have you, have you ever noticed that it is the news media that seems to foster our fear? In the United States, 90 people die every day in auto accidents. 90 people every day. But I can't remember the last time I drove away from our house in fear. I got in the car this morning. I wasn't afraid to drive to Bedford. Now, I don't know about Elsie. I was driving, so she may have a different story to tell. But I wasn't afraid to get in the car and drive. The, the news media didn't talk about the, the, the deaths in, in automobiles. But you let the news media report on a rogue shark attack somewhere along the Atlantic coast, and people everywhere are afraid to go to the beach. By the way, do you know how many people die annually around the world from shark bites? Those of you in the choir, do you remember from first service? Oh, good, you listened well. Five people. Ninety people die every day from automobile accidents. Five people die annually around the globe from shark bites. And yet we're scared to go to the beach. Fear makes for a distressing companion, folks. At the mention of COVID, fear still raises its ugly head. Bullies on the playground strike fear into the hearts of good students. Inflation reduces our income but increases our fear for the future. Fear grips us as we slide into that MRI tube, as we hear the whir of the dentist's drill, as we sit behind the wheel of the car for our very first driver's test. And fear of the unknown is the worst. The what-ifs of life. Now, you can't do anything about the what-ifs because they haven't happened yet. Why do we fixate on what might happen? The maybes, the unknowns from haunting us. Are you the kind of person that when everything is going good, you can't enjoy it because you're worried when the other shoe's going to drop? I know people like that. When every, when th <laughs> they just can't enjoy it because something bad's about to happen. Think back to the story of the storm-tossed disciples on the Sea of Galilee. They are scared to death that they're going to perish in the, in the Sea of Galilee. And then in the midst of the storm, they see something or someone coming to them on the waves, rising and falling on the crest of the waves, and they are petrified because they don't know what it is. They know the sea, but they don't know what this specter is. And finally, Jesus speaks, and he says, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And suddenly, the disciples were okay. What inspiring words to counter our fears. The good doctor, Luke, challenges us with the response of Peter and John in the early days of the church when hauled before the earthly authorities for healing a crippled man on the Sabbath, Peter responded by preaching. <laughs> now, I wouldn't have done that. I'd have tried to find some answer, but I wouldn't have preached to the authorities. But Peter did. And this is what, what we read after that. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. 
Now, in that verse there, there I think are some tools of how to handle our fears. And here's the first tool. Spend time with Jesus. So they took note that these men had spent time with Jesus. I'm telling you, when you've been with Jesus, courage comes. So spend time with him in his word and spend time with him in prayer. Is the courage of your faith greater than your fear of the world? Claire Booth Luce once said, courage is the ladder on which all other virtues mount. John Wayne said, courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. Billy Graham said, courage is contagious. When a brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are stiffened. Spend time with Jesus. A relationship with him builds courage and gets rid of your fears. Here's, here's another thing. Pray up and speak up. When confronted with the angry authorities, Peter didn't fall silent and go off and cower in a corner. He preached. Remember Paul's admonition? He said, speak the truth. Speak it in love, but speak the truth. We need to pray for the courage to speak up in love to remind people that in Christ, our fear is powerless. And then simply, do what is right. Do what is right. Later in Acts 4, the Jewish authorities recalled Peter and John and commanded them and said, don't preach or teach anymore in the name of this Jesus. And then they responded. Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. No earthly mandate from no group of men could trump God's authority. They were going to do what was right in his eyes. How about you? Christian, are you committed to doing what is right in God's sight? Because I'm telling you, it takes courage to do that. It takes courage to live lives of purity in a day when morality doesn't matter much anymore, when it's up for grabs. Be fearless. Don't let anything destroy your integrity. It takes courage not to pass along gossip, to allow gossip to die at your feet. It takes courage to be calm and kind in the face of angry complaints and unjust allegations. It takes courage to stand for God's timeless word when the world dismisses the Bible as irrelevant and antique. Be courageous. Spend time with Jesus. Speak up for him. Pray up with him and do what is right. And you say, well, is there any fear that's good? Yeah. There is one fear that is necessary for life. And we find that in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion to the matter. Fear God, fear God, and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of every human being. There's the fear that counts. Fearing God. In the sense of deep respect for God's greatness. That's the fear you can't do without. And the good news the good news is because Jesus conquered death, there is no fear he can't vanquish. Here's another one. Good news, death is powerless. Death is powerless. Now, when the Bible speaks of death, it speaks of it in two ways. It speaks of it in physical death and it speaks in spiritual death. Now, the physical death is the one that affects us most because that's what we can see. Uh, we see the death and devastation on the news in Ukraine, and we hurt for those people, especially those of the kingdom. 
We see family and friends around us dying, and we are dismayed by our loss. But spiritual death is far greater than the physical death. When, when people die, there's a sadness, but if they are spiritually right, we know there's a hope. But when we continue in spiritual death, the physical death is permanent. But apart from the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the separation with God, which is what death means, is, is everlasting. Jesus reunited us spiritually so that even physical death is a temporary state. Because one of these days, folks, at the end of time, when Jesus comes back, the Bible says that the bodies of those who are dead, the bodies of the, will be raised. Not to be the same. We're not going to look the same. Well, we'll look the same sort of because it's us. But I, I, you know, I don't know what age our bodies will be like in heaven, but I can tell you this, they will be made immortal and incorruptible. We will never have the problems that we have in this life. And that's the good news. That is the good news. Most of you know that my 90-year-old mom went home to be with the Lord just this last November. It, it came as a real surprise because we all thought she was in such great health. Mom thought she was in great health. Mom wouldn't have any problems. And on a Sunday morning, she passed out, hit her head, and when they got her to the hospital, and the doctor started checking her out, found that she had all kinds of things wrong. And he said, you're not going to survive this. So when we got there on Sunday afternoon to the hospital, the room was anything but somber. Mom was talking and laughing. There were other people there from her home church at that time. We had the best Sunday afternoon laughing and talking. And, and mom was there was a childlike joy in my mom's face as she knew what was about to happen. She was expecting it to happen that day or that night. And she said, I'm, I'm so excited. I'm going to get to go home. I'm going to get to see the Lord. I'm going to get to see your dad again because he'd passed away two years before that. And then she paused and she said, I will miss my family. And there was a tear here. And then she said, but I'm going to get to go home. It was like an afterthought. Yeah, I got to include you all, but I'm, I'm headed to where eternity begins. It, it was beautiful in my 46 years of preaching. I've never had a moment of joy in the face of death quite like that. <laughs> On Monday morning when my sister walked into her hospital room, mom looked at her and she said, well, I'm still here. <laughs> you know, her expectation was the culmination of 90 years of loving God and walking faithfully with him. Mom spent nine decades showing us all how to live in faith and concluded her lifelong journey lesson by showing us how to die in faith. If only I could leave this world so faithfully. So the good news is this. Fear and death are powerless. God's hope conquers all. Here's the last thing. So we know that um, uh, th there's this enemy that is powerless. We know that there's this uh, fear that's powerless, and we know there's this other enemy called death that is powerless. But the good news, the last thing I want to deal with is the good news is that God is all-powerful. God is all-powerful. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing, nothing is too hard for you. Sovereign means he is over everything. And nothing is impossible for him. Uh, you don't have to look very far to find things that just point you to the greatness of God. Are you comfortable in your own skin this morning? I, I hope so, because your, your skin is your largest bodily 
organ, covering the entire surface, obviously, of your body. You see it every morning in the mirror, but do you realize how remarkable it is? Now, there are, are three major layers to this fascinating organ, but we're going to take a look at the outer layer, the, the, the epidermis. And, and actually, there are layers to the epidermis. We're just going to talk about the, uh, the out part you see, which is basically the thickness of the plastic wrap that you use to wrap up your leftovers before you put them in the refrigerator. Our outer layer is composed of dead cells tightly attached to one another to resist wear and tear. And did you know that you lose up to 40,000 cells, skin cells, every minute? You've lost 1.2 million cells during this sermon this morning. Some of you are looking in the chair to see if you can see a pile. Actually, annually, we will lose 9 pounds of dead cells from our skin. Nine pounds. I'd like to lose a little bit more than that in this area, uh, but nine pounds of dead skin. But here's the miracle. New cells are replacing the old cells at the exact same rate. So God has ensured that your skin remains intact, remains in good shape, and that the miracle that is happening every minute of your life shows the power of God at work. This really is, our skin really is his miracle wrap for our bodies. You may have thought that beauty was only skin deep, but I'm telling you, it's not. It's beauty in what God has created in our midst. What a powerful God we serve. And if that doesn't do, you for, doesn't do it for you, then consider the ruffed grouse, which builds a shallow nest on the ground, lines it with leaves and pine needles, and then begins to lay her eggs. Now, she will lay between 8 and 14 eggs, but she only lays one a day. And she knows not to start incubating the first one until she has laid the last one. Somehow she knows which ones are fertile and which ones are not, and she rolls the bad eggs out of the nest. And when she begins to incubate the eggs, it will take her 24 uh, uh, days, and when that period is over, the chicks will hatch, and remarkably, they are odorless, which means the predators of the forest cannot smell these newborns. Within 24 hours of their hatching, they can run and run fast. The mother grouse teaches them a warning cry, and when it is sounded, the chicks scatter in all different directions, and then the mother grouse begins to squawk and writhe as if in pain, acts as if her wing were broken, and about the time the predator is to pounce, the grouse takes off with a whoosh and flies 35 miles an hour through the forest, dodging the trees and the shrubbery and everything else. I, I, that's, and you say, oh, well, do you know the fastest human being has been clocked at 27 miles an hour? And that's in a short burst. 27 miles. Can you imagine running full tilt through a forest, being able to dodge every tree and bush and shrub? I don't think so. And yet the grouse can do that by God's great power. When the mother returns, she gives the all clear warning and the chicks come out from hiding and gather under her wings. And I'm reminded of what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 63. Because you are my helper, I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you, your strong right hand holds me securely. People, 
if God can use dead cells to constantly provide you with a new outer layer, and if God can sustain the rough grouse from the terrors of the forest, don't you think he can protect you from the adversary, from your fears, and from death itself? You see, here's the good news. The good news is that your bad news can be transformed into good news through Jesus Christ himself because of his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And what we're about to do right now is to participate in that very thing. When we come to the Lord's table and we get ready to take communion, we take the bread and we take the cup, we are to be reminded of the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this morning, as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, I want you to think, this is good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this day and we are grateful for all that you have done to make life possible. And in this broken world that we live in, Father, with all of Satan's destructive power, with all of our fear that sometimes gathers around us, with all of our concern over death, help us to remember that all of that is powerless to you because you are the all-powerful God who provides us with life now and life eternal. Lord, we thank you for these elements, these pieces of bread and these cups of juice that remind us of the body and the blood of Jesus as we participate in this beautiful memorial supper. May we do so, Lord, in a way that honors you and is worthy of the one who gave us the good news through his death, burial, and resurrection. 